Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. Who am I even talking to? This is Ken in Indiana. And I'm Jamie in Utah. Today we are playing for you an interview we conducted with the legendary Carl Truman. Carl Truman. Yes. Have you ever asked yourself, man, you're looking at the world around you, and you just wonder, how in the world did we get to this place? How is it that the things that are going on in the world are going on? You see crazy headlines, you hear about, you know, bathroom issues of guys being going into women's bathrooms, you hear about transgender issues. How did we get to this point? If you've ever asked that question, then this is the episode that you need to listen to. Because we had a good conversation with Carl Truman about his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And in that book, he describes how we get got to where we are today. It's a very informative, very helpful, very important conversation as we think through these issues so that we can better engage with the culture around us. Any feedback you have for us, we you can send it to us at show at dotheology.com. Send us a tweet at, at, uh, at dotheology. And don't forget to leave a review, a rating, uh, five stars on all platforms. See you on the other side of the music. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's, it's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic. It's watered down. It has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Today's guest is the professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. He is the author of many books, contributes to First Things, a journal of religion and public life, blogs at Reformation21.com, and co-hosts The Mortification of Spin, a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Today we are talking to him about his latest and best-selling book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman, it is our delight to welcome you to the podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Carl, the rise and triumph of the modern self has been wildly successful and has been endorsed formally and informally from many reputable Christians from around the world in recent months. I think uh, John MacArthur even mentioned it in a, a sermon recently. As you set out to write this book, did, did you have any idea that it would enjoy the success, the success that it has? None whatsoever. Um, I've never made more than a takeaway pizza out of uh, anything I've ever written, I think. So this was a bit of a surprise. But yeah, I'm, I'm gratified. Uh, the, the sort of the, uh, maybe it's the evil part of me, I don't know, but part of me thinks, what a great year to publish it in. <laughs> I, I couldn't have asked for society to descend into better chaos for this book to kind of meet a need. Conspiracy theorists may be able to connect some dots there. But uh, no, as, as a serious point, I, I, you know, it's, it's a 400-page book that, that's pretty heavily footnoted at points. It's not standard bestseller kind of material. So I'm, I'm very gratified. And also... 
I guess uh, encourage is the wrong word, but uh, I'm pleased that it seems to be meeting a need. Uh, mm. It's I, I hope that it's successful because these are questions that people are actually having to face, and, and the book is proving helpful uh, in helping to address those. Hmm. Yeah, the book deals with worldviews, and it details many of the mechanics behind our culture's current thinking, which has, of course, manifested itself most prominently in the social justice movement and in the sexual revolution. Those who spend their lives in conservative Christian circles, churches like yours and ours, they may not understand the general worldview mechanics in the culture. Um, and it's likely that they may also not understand just how pervasive and widespread the worldview is. Can you help our audience understand how significant of an issue the triumph of the modern self is? Sure. Well, one of the things that I, I, I noticed, I was actually a pastor myself when I was right, started to work on it. I was teaching at a seminary and, and pastoring, uh, I say part-time pastor, but as you guys know, there is no such thing <laughs> yeah, as right. part-time pastor. Yeah. So I got not just the standard academic questions that any academic has when he's operating in, in the seminar room, but also very practical questions coming at me from the congregation. And one of the things I was struck by was how disturbed, shocked, surprised, disoriented people were by the speed of what we call the sexual revolution. You know, to bring it down to, to specifics, we might say, you know, the, the speed at which gay marriage went from being something that President Obama had to distance himself from to get get elected to something he embraced, to something the Supreme Court affirmed. And yet, as, as the Supreme Court is affirming it, trans, transgenderism is, is hitting the headlines and carrying all before it. And I was struck at how disturbed people, conservative Christian people were by the speed of these things happening. And, and that was one of the, the things that encouraged me to write the book. And, and I think that to go to your question of how important is it to understand this stuff, I think one of the things the book tries to do is demonstrate that although these phenomena that I've mentioned are happening very, very quickly and very, very dramatically, in actual fact, the culture, the context, the backstory of these things is, is very long-standing, goes back a long way and is very deep in our culture. And so even though it seems shocking and chaotic, there is a might say a disturbing long-term logic to what's going on that one can trace and also uh, and i was sort of i suppose a little surprised by this but i but i think it, it might be a helpful conclusion as well i was struck as i was working on the book at how much the the pathologies as i call them of the culture the aspects of the culture that make this stuff plausible have actually shaped Christianity as well. It's mm. there's a great temptation, I think, among conservative Christians to to adopt a, a Pharisee in the temple. Lord, I thank you that you know this mm. trans stuff over here has nothing to do with us. Mm. In actual fact, when you understand that that trans ideology, LGBTQ, is is really just one manifestational function of a much broader phenomenon, the modern self, one realizes actually. There are elements of that modern self that have that are alive and well and shaping modern conservative Christianity yeah. as well. What are some of those ways that you see that that has that influence has taken place? What's some of the evidence of that? Well, to to give a sort of broad uh, you know, a broad comment on the modern self, I say one of the characteristics of the modern self is that it, it tends to identify. We tend to identify. Uh, the purpose of life as an inner sense of happiness, inner sense of psychological well-being. 
And that means that we tend to, to construct our ethics and the, and the way we operate in the world around fulfilling that purpose, fulfilling that need. Think about churches. Now, just to sort of give a bit of context here, I, I love living in a country where there's freedom of religion. It's, it's great to live here and not in China or Iran. So don't take anything I say as a criticism of freedom of religion. But freedom of religion, as well as being a good thing, creates certain conditions. And one of those conditions is there's a lot of choices as to places you can go to worship. We go to the Baptists, Presbyterians. There, you know, if you're a Presbyterian, there's a dozen Presbyterian varieties. There's probably a dozen Baptist varieties. There are Bible churches. There's missionary alliance churches. There's a lot of churches to choose from. And that tends to turn Christianity and the church into a kind of marketplace mm-hmm. where the consumer really has the power. So a lot of us tend to go to the church that scratches the itch we feel. I go to a a very doctrinally oriented church with very traditional worship. And you might, uh, uh, you know, somebody like me might say, that's because it's pure worship. But I'm also aware that's the kind of guy I am. I'm a cerebral sort of guy and I'm English, so I don't like a lot of displays of emotion, et cetera, in worship. (laughs) I'm also kind of choosing to go to a church that kind of fits the person I am and means that, I feel pretty good and affirmed as the person I am on a Sunday. So I'd say one of the things that we as Christians need to be aware of is one of the great virtues of American society, freedom of religion, also has that flip side that means that our mentality can become that of consumers. And we choose our churches on the basis of does the preaching, does that does that meet me where I want to be met? Does the does the worship, is that my style? We too can be very governed by I would say, aesthetic kind of choices with a view to making ourselves feel good inside. Mm. Have to be on, we have to be on guard about that and watch out for that. Uh, as, you were, as you were studying for this and you're obviously reading through uh, some works from, from history, some that pretty heady, some maybe difficult to uh, work through, was it difficult to, as you're studying these different psychological works, translating them down into a format where the average American Christian could understand? <laughs> yeah, at times it was. So, I mean, some of these guys are, are pretty straightforward. You know, Nietzsche, for example, 19th century German philosopher, or, or Sigmund Freud. I'm, I would have many criticisms of Nietzsche and Freud, but um, unclear communication is not one of them. They, they write very well. They're, they're in some ways very powerful and I won't say entertaining, but very gripping reads. Others, Hegel, some elements of Marx. Wow, that's that's tough stuff. And but I think I you know I'm a teacher. I've been teaching now for, for 30 years. All I do is read books and translate them into ways that I can communicate in the classroom. And one of the the great fortunes I had as I was really finalizing this book my last year of writing this book was i was also teaching at grove city college and and i introduced quite a lot of the material into the classroom and it's very very helpful when you're teaching 18 to 22 year old Mm. kids they're they're a great sounding board for breaking stuff down and making Mm. it comprehensible so yeah some of the thinkers did take a a a bit of work particularly hegel he's virtually unreadable i have to say (laughs) but it's it, when you when you get into it, when you realize what he's saying, it's very important, and it can be communicated uh, if you if you reflect long and hard on how to do that. 
as you were wading through all of that material and then drawing conclusions about where society is now, did you emotionally go through any sort of depression, uh, understanding just how deep these things go in the human soul? Good question. Uh, not really. I, I probably because I'm a superficial sort of guy, and I'm just sort of, wow, this is great as I'm reading it. And um, I, I was just set on the task before me. I, I don't normally do that. I, I wrote a few book a few years ago, Histories and Fallacies, where I had a chapter on Holocaust denial, mm. and I had to spend a month or two reading Holocaust denial sites, and and that's the only time when I've been writing something where stuff emotionally got to me. You know, mm. when you when when you see evil like that presented, but in this book, because the ideas were more abstract, it was easier to mm. to distance myself uh, from them, I guess. And the other side of the this is I, I always think even in, in, in the thinkers in the book that I radically disagree with, uh, there's always something there that captures some element of the truth. Mm. Where, where, you know, Nietzsche, when he essentially mm. says, if God is dead, we have to reinvent everything. And that's a terrifying, pro, you know, that's, that's a terrifying prospect. I, I find Nietzsche very helpful at that point. I say, yeah, I can, I can agree with him. I don't agree that God is dead, but that insight is an important one that, that Christians need to hear. We all need to hear. And being an Orthodox Presbyterian and a good Calvinist, you're in touch with total depravity. So I suppose at that level, nothing can really surprise you, huh? <laughs> yeah, the, I, I joke to students. I say, you know, when, when I teach Nietzsche in my humanity class, I say, you know, Nietzsche... There's a lot of Romans one in Nietzsche. You know, he's, he, you know, he and he and the Apostle Paul would have certain things they in common when they sit down. You know, yeah. they sat down over coffee. Uh, so you're absolutely correct. Yeah. Now, now, years ago, I was starting to understand how the issue of homosexuality was different than other sinful behaviors in the sense that identity was wrapped up in that behavior. Uh, in American society, and I would say in most societies, especially in the West. There's the shame tied to things such as lying and stealing. No one wants to be identified as a liar. No one wants to be identified as a thief. Um, but when it comes to homosexuality, our society, our culture, and now, of course, our government has cleared the way, has made a path to where that identity should be praised. Uh, not only should it not be shamed, but it should be, must be praised. And I'm wondering, and, and of course, this is what, what you walk through in the book, and I'm wondering if that presents a unique opportunity for the gospel. I mean, we can think of challenges for the gospel, but is there an opportunity for the gospel in the sense that people are identified by their sin? Of course, they don't accept it as sin, but at least their identity is in the right place as we go to approach that gospel conversation. It's interesting. I've never had the question posed to me in quite that form before. Um, I think so. I think it makes the the dividing line clearer, I guess. In some ways, it presents us with more difficult challenges on a personal level, because when you're able to distinguish the, the sin from the sinner, then versions of the old statements, I hate the sin but love the sinner, work. You know, I, I hate the fact you're greedy, but hey, we can still go out for a coffee, we can still engage, I can still like you and respect you. That's very different to saying to somebody, I hate your identity, which is mm. which is essentially what's heard when we talk about sexuality today. And that, I think, presents a peculiar challenge because it does seem to me that if the gospel is going to, to, to make headway, humanly speaking, obviously the headway of the gospel is, is ultimately a, a matter of God's sovereignty. Uh, but if humanly speaking, we're going to have strategies for, for 
pressing the gospel forward. It's going to be hard to do that without personal relationships. Yeah. And if, if the opening salvo, if you like, is something that denies the humanity of that person as they see it, hmm. that's a real conversation ender. So I think it presents a, a peculiar challenge. Uh, but it, it maybe it also presents an opportunity in the sense that it, it, it challenges us to truly go the extra mile in terms of community and friendship in order, you know, we're going to have to work much harder to demonstrate that we love the sinner and hate the sin. So maybe on that front, yeah, maybe it presents a, a, an, an opportunity. I hadn't thought of it along quite those terms, but perhaps. So in the book, you noted how, you know, not that long ago, it would have been completely nonsensical for someone to say, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. And yet, you know, today's culture just accepts that as a statement, and it's totally accepted without any pushback from the broader culture. And, and you mo noted a moment ago how this cultural moment is not a standalone moment. It, it has a, an ideological genealogy of sorts that goes back, and you've kind of traced that out throughout the book. Why is it important to understand not just the fact of our current cultural moment, but also how we got to this moment? Why is that critical to understand? number of reasons. One, to go back to the, 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 the previous question, it, it allows us to understand that discussion of sexual issues is now matters of identity in a way that it wouldn't have been in ancient Greece. In Paul's world, yeah, there's a lot of homosexuality, but nobody was identifying as gay. Nobody identified themselves by their sexual desires. Sex was an activity in which you engaged in. And Paul would have seen some sexual activities as a legitimate some as, as illegitimate. So I think it helps clarify the precise, we might say, apologetic issue that we're, we're facing. Secondly, I think it also helps to sober us. Uh, one of the things I, when I arrived in America, one of my American friends said to me, you need to realize that every four years, Americans elect the new Messiah. Yeah, the, uh, left and right, they tend to put a huge amount of weight on the man in the White House. And I think one of the things that Christians need to realize is this isn't going away anytime soon. You know, if President Trump had been reelected last November, it wouldn't really have made a whole, you know, it may have slowed things down, for example, as it did, I think, over the last four years on the, on the LGBTQ rights front. But the causes of this are very deep-seated, and it's not a case of winning the White House or getting the right Supreme Court appointment. Those things, don't get me wrong, those things can be great goods in themselves. And I'm not saying Christians should abdicate their civic responsibility. But it is to say we need to realize that that's, it's not, that's not a silver bullet for solving, uh, solving the problem. And that, I think, leads to my third point. It means that we, we're in this for the long haul. And we have to think about how we are going to uh, address this over over a long period of time. And that, I think, should lead us to maybe double down on some strategies we're already doing or start those things if we're not. One of them, I think, is catechizing our children, teaching mm. our children well. If identity is, as I argue in the book, uh, largely constructed by communities, and Paul seems to hint that way, he said, bad company corrupts morals, yeah. then the strongest identity you have comes from the strongest community to which you belong. And I think the church needs to be a strong community uh, as well. So knowing the story, I think that, you know, the, the depressing side of it is it makes it real, us realize the depth and the magnitude of the problem. And hopefully that will enable us to focus on, on the serious things. I hope it also 
helps us reorientate, reorient ourselves in a, a New Testament way. I think Paul's very clear that uh, the things of this world are passing away. He doesn't say they're not important, but they are passing away. And our ultimate hope lies beyond. And I hope this book makes us realize, yeah, this world's important, but at the end of the day, our, our hope has to lie in the beyond. That's the real thing we need to focus on. Mm. That's good. One of the cultural shifts that you described in the book has to do with how society's institutions have largely become platforms or stages for individuals rather than authorities that help groups of people kind of conform to pre-existing standards. And one of the quotes that really stuck out to me from early in the book is, is this, institutions such as schools and churches are places where one goes to perform and not to be formed, or perhaps better, where one goes to be formed by performing. What are some ways that uh, this has played itself out in our current culture? Yeah, that's. Uh, I have to immediately at this point acknowledge that that is not an original insight with me. Yuval Levine, uh, who's a very important, he's conservative Jewish thinker. I don't know if you could ever get him on your podcast, but he'd be <laughs> great to talk on that issue. Uh, Yuval Levine's uh, book, uh, recent book, is is an excellent statement of that. Really, from where I draw that insight, and and I think one can look at uh, a, a number of ways that is uh, affecting our culture. I think of child centered education which actually has historical antecedents in Rousseau, the guy that I start my, mm. my narrative with, the idea that, that schools are there not to, as my school was, you know, grab British English grammar school in the 1980s, you went there to be sometimes literally knocked into shape to make mm. you a decent mm. member of society. Mm. I tell the kids some of what I consider to be quite mild stories from my education, what I witnessed of that, and they're thinking teachers would go to prison if they did that mm. today. But it's not the world where you go in and they they basically teach you how to behave to become a, a decent member of society. Mm -hmm. You go in order to have your, your sort of natural talents, that inner voice of nature released and maybe channeled in the right direction. But I think uh, when you think of, of, of child-centered education or even something like Sesame Street, I, you know, Sesame Street is a great kids program, not knocking Sesame Street, but... When education becomes entertainment, that's mm. an interesting shift. Yeah. I never went to school to be entertained. I went to school to be bored out of my mind <laughs> while I was being formed into what I was meant to be. Yeah, uh, there's a, almost that added element of you deserve a stage to perform. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you and you see that when you have these graduations at college, every couple of years, somebody hits the headlines because the graduation speaker will say something like, you are not special. Yeah. And that's controversial. You know, I'm mm. thinking nobody's special. It's controversial when somebody points that out. That goes to the heart of a culture where actually, yeah, we're all supposed to, we're all supposed to be unique. I want to say, no, you're not that unique. I, I, mm. I'm not unique. You're not unique. Well, in, in some ways we are, but in most important ways, we're not. We actually mm. conform to certain types. So school would be one example of that. Social media. Uh, I don't do Twitter, I don't do Facebook, I don't do Instagram. I don't understand how these things operate. I don't understand the attraction, but what I see of them, most of those uh, venues seem to be venues where people create an image of themselves and, and perform it before, before the public. Uh, mm -hmm. So that would be another example uh, of that yeah. that I would draw out. Yeah, that presenting that paradigm of the two types of 
approaches to life, essentially, but specifically to our institutions. That was very instructive for me as I considered the world uh, in which I live. And I also appreciated the quote that's on the next page uh, from the one Ken just read, where you said, if the inner psychological life of the individual is sovereign, then identity becomes as potentially unlimited as the human imagination. So if we consider these things, the approach to the institutions and the unlimited essentially the unlimited manifestations of the human imagination, where, where do we go from here? I, I mean, I, I think some people may think that we've reached the limit of human imagination and expression through sexual yeah. identity, but is there evidence that we still have a ways to go? Oh, I think that the whole rising transhumanist idea that we could sort of blend human beings with machines and go mm. beyond ourselves that way clearly indicates that somebody's at least envisaging uh, that and I, I think I quote Shakespeare to this effect in the book. So, you know, as long as you can say it is the worst, it is not the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, you know, where do we go from here? I don't know. One of the interesting things, of course, is what what one might call the practicalities of this, and that is although we could potentially have unlimited identities. In actual fact, in practice, we can't because mm. some identities are going to collide with others. You know, in the most extreme form, we might say, you know, the serial killer's identity cannot be tolerated because that collides in a way that damages a whole lot of other people's identities. Mm -hmm. When you're living in a psychological world, of course, where words are the things that do a lot of damage, you come down to the point that we have to end up policing words, mm -hmm. that some identities ultimately have to be privileged and other identities have to be outlawed in order for society to be remotely coherent. And that ironically means that in a world of, of sort of radical individual libertarian identities, you end up with a rather authoritarian form of government. And that's sort of what we're heading to rather rapidly now. Um, in the early days of the Biden administration, we've already seen the number of executive orders that uh, that significantly tightened the screws on uh, the limits of identity. Uh, the, the bill on transgender issues in public schools, for example, is essentially saying that some identities in public schools are more important than others. Yeah. And the ones that are more important are going to have the protection of the law. And the ones that stand in the way of those identities, they're going to be on the you know, the sharp end of the law if they're, if they're not careful. So it's interesting to me that we are seeing, yes, infinite potential identities. But in practice, that has to be limited. We all know that. That has always been the case. Mm -hmm. And now the way the culture is heading is it means that the identities that say conservative Christians or conservative Jewish people or you know, conservative Muslims, that religiously conservative people have, they're the ones that are going to be marginalized, outlawed, and, and placed yeah. under under legal penalties. So with that, you know, it's it's, it's kind of remarkable to me that uh, you know, the influence of just a small handful of individuals. You know, it wasn't you know, your book traced you know a pretty relatively small handful of individuals as they thought through and processed different things and advanced different ideas. And that the, yet these ideologies have become so deeply embedded within our modern culture, and we see that all around us. But it's not like 
these men had ideas that just initially took the world by storm and dominated immediately. In fact, there was even some strong opposition to these ideas. And you mentioned in the book about how uh, Freud's science, so-called, has largely been debunked. And we saw, you know, Marxism dealt a major blow as the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, etc. And even Freud himself recognized that uh, the logical outflow of his ideas were largely pessimistic. Like this is, this is not a good trajectory that to go on with this. So with, with all of that coming together, how is it that these ideas have actually become the prevalent and prevailing idea of the day, despite the obstacles that they faced? Good question. And, and I want you know, to stress at this point, the, the book only tells a partial narrative. One of the things they say pretty near the beginning is, you know, there's a whole technological side to mm. this. You know, for ideas to, to come to gain, gain traction in society, they have to be plausible. Yeah, it, transgenderism would not be plausible prior to our understanding and development of hormone treatments and surgeries. You know, now it, it seems plausible that we could gerrymander a body and make a man's body into a woman's body. That would not have been possible 200 years ago. So that idea was never going to take root. Mm. So one part of the answer to that question, I think, is that, that technology has helped to make some of these ideas very, very plausible. Uh, Marx and Engels, actually, in the in the Communist Manifesto, eighteen forty eight, they're they're not thinking about trans ideology, but they make the point that as automation comes into factories, the difference between men and women will diminish because they you won't need the same raw physical strength. So they're pointing there, interestingly, to the fact that technology will attenuate the sex difference. Uh, so technology is a big, big part of this, I think. Secondly, I'd want to uh, uh, add a sort of anthropological dimension. And I want to say that you know, any ideology that that allows us to think we're God, any ideology that, that grants us more power rather than less is a winner mm. from a human perspective. And I might even deepen that further and say any ideology that that makes getting as much sex as possible, the meaning of life, that's a winner. No, nobody ever lost money by saying, you know, you need to have, you know, you need to have more sex. Hmm. I think sex, sexual, uh, sexual desires are very, very powerful. Uh, the fulfillment of them is very, very satisfying. And so I think that that Freudian trajectory really strikes a, a kind of anthropological chord uh, with us, so let's say the the LGBTQ movement. In some ways, it's a it's a it's a winning combination, because it's all about transgression and human freedom, about self creation, and it's all about sex, two powerful and appealing things. And thirdly, I'd add to that that there's a there's also and this is a, a sort of a positive in humanity, which leads to a negative, and that is there is a sense in which as human beings we are empathetic. And we do want other human beings to be happy, I think, because we want to be happy ourselves. And there's a sense in which you, know, you oppose gay marriage. You don't want people to be happy. Yeah, we're denying yeah. Their, their central right as human beings. Yeah. I remember the day Obercavell v. Hodges was decided, seeing the, the crowd celebrating outside the Supreme Court. And although I had strong moral objections to the decision, you know, even I'm looking at those crowds and thinking, you know, there's something very appealing about seeing ordinary people being really happy in this this mm -hmm. situation. And, you know, the ban on gay marriage, it's not harming, you know, it, it's not 
the release, the, the, the legalization of gay marriage in some senses doesn't, strictly speaking, harm me personally in any way. And so the, the natural human empathy for a sort of libertarian view of ethics, I think, also plays into making these ideas very, very plausible as well. I imagine that Would, blending that in with even the American ideal, so to speak, of the, the Declaration of Independence, certain inalienable yeah. rights of life, liberty, yeah. and the pursuit of happiness, yeah. that that yeah. just dovetails right into that. Well, and I, the, I mentioned before we started the article I'd written for Deseret Journal. Uh, I actually take the pursuit of happiness as a sort of starting point and say, this is now a problem, because when Jefferson and company wrote that, happiness had a specific shape. Hmm. It, it was in submission to the existing institutions. Yes, and they believed in natural law. Now, I don't think they were all Christians, but they, they believed that there was a moral shape to the universe and happiness was to be found by acting in accordance with that moral shape. Once you deny the moral shape, the pursuit of happiness, that's a runaway train, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I would say to the students, I wish that Jefferson had, you know, stuck to his, his idea of, you know, life, liberty, and the ownership of property. That strikes mm, yes. me as, as a much more, you know, tangible goal for a nation to have. Much yeah. as we all want to pursue happiness, it's kind of, wow, that's, mm -hmm. that's a crazy thing to write into your founding documents. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, we, we'd like to take our... Our remaining time and focus on the local church. Um, we are uh, pastors. You're a churchman yourself. We care about the local church. Uh, we serve, give, attend. We we live our lives very much revolving around the local church because of uh, our calling in Christ to to serve in that way. Coming from a pastoral perspective, what's the most important thing? or one of the most important things that we should seek to help our congregations understand about these issues? And is there any immediate step in the very near future, is there any immediate step churches who care about these things should be taking? Yeah, that's a huge question. I mean, there are, there are a whole host of things that come to mind from a legal, practical, ethical sort of perspective. I do think that one thing... Uh, one thing that we did, I think, at the church where I was a pastor, and, and, and our building was a converted bowling alley, so it was unlikely that it was ever going to happen, but we made it a condition that to, to hold a wedding in our church building, you had to be members of our church. Mm. And that was a way of trying to at least play, place one more roadblock up against a kind of agent provocateur move of a gay couple coming and wanting to be married in the building. So I think that churches need to think about some simple legal protections. There are no legal protections that will protect you absolutely at this point, yeah. but there are things that you can put in place to, to increase the level of legal safety. Secondly, I think a refocusing on the church's community, um, 10, 15 years ago, there was the uh, emergent church movement, and it was a bit of a disaster. It was a bit of a disaster because ultimately it abandoned really Christian doctrine. But I, I think what guys like myself missed as we were critiquing the emergent church was for all of the disaster of the doctrinal side, at least in its early iterations, it was trying to capture something true about the church, that it is to be a real community. Mm. And, there was an attraction to that model for that reason. Yeah, yeah. And and it was powerful. And in the book, I make the point that one of the reasons the LGBTQ movement has been so successful is it was a true community. It, you know, yeah. it, it may have been a community built on precisely the wrong principles, but these people cared and loved for each other. Mm. 
They looked after each other. None of them went hungry. They were in out of each other's houses. They, they really did watch each other's backs. And I think the church needs to cultivate something of that more than just where you go on Sunday to hear some guy preach and sing a few songs. There has to be a real building of community. The church has to be a, a community of protest, if you like, mm -hmm. by showing its love for each other to the world. Uh, thirdly, I do think that pastors need to think very carefully about how they, how and what they teach. I was told uh, when I was pastoring, uh, an older pastor said to me, don't make the mistake of assuming that anybody under the age of 30 agrees with you or sees what you see as obvious in the Bible about sexual ethics. Mm. He said, just don't make that assumption. Now, that was 10 years ago, so maybe that's everybody under 40 now. I, I, I don't know. But I certainly think pastors need to be very intentional and very clear in how they teach on these hot-button issues. And related to that, I think... Uh, one of the ways that, that I found at teaching the young people at Grove, one of the things I found to be helpful is, is talking about natural law. Now, all kinds of questions come up with natural law. You know, the idea, again, that the, the world has a natural moral structure to it. Uh, I, I have a lot of young people at Grove, good Christian people. And if, you, if they ask me about homosexuality, for example, and I were to say, homosexuality is wrong because the Bible says so, that's good enough. That's good enough for them. But... I know at the back of their minds, given the world, the way the world is today, they're thinking, but, but why is it wrong? Is it just because God doesn't want people to be happy? Mm. Why does the Bible say that? And I think part of the answer to that is to teach them to think holistically, not only about the Bible's message, but also to show them that actually the Bible's message also makes sense. Mm. For example, the male and the female body are not designed to, are designed to fit together in certain ways. They're designed for a certain purpose. Uh, sex is designed for a certain purpose. And I think teaching, teaching things that my generation, we never had to bother with because the secular culture's practical ethics were pretty much the same as a Christian's practical ethics. Now they're antithetical. Now they're on a collision course. Now I think we really need to work harder at showing the rising generation that the Bible says this, and actually it makes perfect sense that the Bible says this. God doesn't say homosexuality is wrong because he wants to ruin people's lives. Precisely the opposite. He says it's wrong because actually this is the only way to flourish. And nature itself points us to that. So I think thinking more broadly about how we educate uh, people on some of the hot button issues. Uh, transgenderism, I would say, the one thing we must not do is concede the idea that anyone is born in the wrong body. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes to yeah. you you know, I could see, I've said before, I could see situations where somebody might say to somebody, okay, I'll use your preferred pronoun. I don't agree with that, but I'm going to use your preferred pronoun just to keep the conversation going at this point, because I respect you and love you as the individual you are. I could see that one might make strategic moves on that front. I don't think there's any room for Christians saying, yeah, you've been born in the wrong body. Let's, let's deal with that. We need to press home that you are your body. It's impossible for you to be born in the wrong body because your body actually is, in a deep sense, you. It's not something you inhabit. It is you. So it seems like several of the things that you just brought up, and as we're thinking in the church context, and going back to what you said earlier about catechizing our children too, it almost seems like it's a rebirth of the fights that Machen was involved in 100 years ago. And 
evolution seems to be a part of all of this too, where there's a standard acceptance in our culture that we are just animals and that there are no rules. Um, is there an injection of Genesis that's needed in our churches of understanding Genesis one through 12? Um, I, I was told in Bible college, if you lose Genesis one through 12, you lose everything. Is that a particular need in our churches? Yeah. Well, I've never thought of Genesis. I, I'd have to think about Genesis one through 12 in those terms, but I think Genesis one, two, yeah. yeah. If you lose those, you lose everything. Now I know there are Christ, you know, there are I, what I consider to be legitimate debates among Christians, but exactly what Genesis 1 is teaching concerning the timetabling, et cetera, of creation. But the basic metaphysical principles that are being outlined there, I think, are absolutely uh, essential. And, you know, the trans, the trans issue has to be brought to, you know, we have to bring male and female, he created them, to bear on that issue. So I think, yes, creation, a recovery of the doctrine of creation and the implications of creation for human identity absolutely central absolutely central to this debate and you're quite right i think yeah, i'm not a scientist and the details of evolution not something i can comment on with any competence but in the book i touch on darwin and my interest in darwin is a philosophical one in some ways it's not with darwin's science but darwin's notion of evolution really turns human nature into we're just stuff we're just stuff that's evolving over time. There is no moral framework to our existence whatsoever. We're just, you know, we are no more than what we are made of. Well, we are so very grateful for you joining us today. Just have one final question for you. What parting encouragement do you have for listeners of this podcast, lay people, leaders in our churches as they're wrestling with these issues, how to talk about these issues? What final encouragement can you give uh, our people? Two things. One, the obvious one is the promises to the church. Uh, we know that the church wins. The gates of hell will not prevail. Amen. The promise isn't to, isn't to you or to me as an individual or to our congregations or to our denominations. God was quite happy before our denominations came along. He'll be quite happy after they've got, you know, he doesn't mm -hmm. depend upon them. But the promise is to the church. The, the end result of history is not in doubt at this point. The church will win. And I think that really should be a huge encouragement to us. Take us to Second Corinthians, where Paul looks at the the disastrous suffering he's going through in his ministry and says, "But you know, it's a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come." So, the first encouragement is: don't lose sight of the promises. Don't allow your minds to become so wrapped up with the things of this world that are passing that we lose sight of the things of eternity. Secondly. I think don't waste too much time lamenting. Lament's appropriate. The, the Psalms contain lament, but lament can become an end in itself, and that's a problem. Don't waste too much time lamenting. See what's happening as an opportunity. Uh, what was it that made the LGBTQ movement so powerful? It was a powerful community. Why was it a powerful community? It was marginal. It was on the margins. It didn't have any choice. Why were the Jews in Europe so successful? in the 19th century or the non-conformists in England, why did they become so successful? They were on the margins. They had to look after each other, watch each other's backs. So I would say as we're shunted to the margins, yeah, let lament that we're being moved to the margins, but then let's move on and say, okay, this is the world we live in. Let us take advantage of our marginal status by doing what people on the margins do best. And that's becoming a powerful, pungent community that will ultimately punch well above its weight. So 
don't see marginalization as a cause for unconditional and unending lament. See it as a cause, okay, lament today, lament tomorrow, day after tomorrow, let's build a community and get back on with the job in hand. Amen. Good stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today, Carl Truman. We really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me on.